This is Beyond the Farm Gate, a show where we shine a light on great Australian stories in agriculture. On the show, you'll hear from farmers who survive challenges like fire, flood and drought, people who run innovative and unique agribusinesses, and those who are balancing work and family in rural Australia. You'll be inspired hearing their stories and pick up some insights along the way. I'm Beck Wren. I'm Greg Cookle. And I'm Zali Thomas. Today I'm chatting with Jack Jordan-Hill. Jack is a product specialist for Class Lexi and Harvesters in Australia. Jack and I are actually old friends and we studied at Marcus Oldham College down in Geelong together. After high school, he leapt at the opportunity to fulfil a lifelong dream to complete a harvest season in the United States. But when he returned to Australia to study, Jack received some devastating news that changed his life forever. In today's episode, Jack will share his experience on the 2,000-mile American grain harvest and the opportunities he's had to travel the world thanks to ag. He'll also open up about how he persevered through a huge personal tragedy and the advice that he's lived by since then. And before we dive in, I just wanted to give you a little heads up that this episode of Beyond the Farm Gate contains some heavy themes surrounding grief and loss. If this episode raises any issues for you, please contact Lifeline on 13 11 14. We've also put some mental health resources in the episode show notes. All right, let's jump in. Jack, welcome to the show. Thanks, Ali. Thanks for having me on. Jack, long before you got into ag professionally, you grew up on a farm in Winchelsea in Victoria. What was that like for you? Yeah, grew up out of Winchelsea there in southwest Victoria. So I've been out there pretty well my whole life since I was a, a young kid. Grew up to a couple of parents, Mark and Philippa, so they were always in agriculture out there and initially just with my younger brother, Nick. So it was a good experience. Um, we were on a small sheep and cropping farm, so I run prime lamb for meat and also a bit of cropping, which is done by contractors these days, wheat, barley, canola and faba beans. But no, it was always, always a fairly good childhood. I saw Dad working. He, he was a farm manager out at Mount Hess, which was a bigger place up the road for quite a number of years. So I'd always love going out with him, spending the day. In fact, my, my earliest memory of agriculture was with him when I was about three years old. I remember going out to work this day and he had the Echo truck. He must have been sowing at the time, the old Echo truck with the group of bins on the back, driving across the paddock and he, he hit a soft spot, classic for and Victoria there. We went down in the truck and he's like, oh, righto. So his tractor was at the side of the paddock and, yeah, being three, put me over his shoulder and we went for a bit of a, a wander over to this tractor and he brought it back there. And with no one else around and in the days before, seat sensors and all the sensors that stop you from driving if you're too light, he hooked this tractor up to the truck with a tow rope in between, sat me on the seat with the seat pumped up as high as it would go and pushed all the way forward and said, just hold the steering wheel straight, Jack, you'll be able to pull me out. So he left the tractor in gear A1, put the clutch out, and I remember him walking down the steps back to the truck, and as that tow rope's just taken up real slowly, I looked over my shoulder while I was legs dangling, just hanging onto the steering wheel there, looking back over my shoulder and in the truck window underneath his broad brim hat, he was in there smiling, giving me the big cheesy thumbs up, so... I just thought at that point in time, Jesus, agriculture is a good thing to be a part of. It wasn't always with just my brother. When I grew up to about 12 years old, we 
had a phone call one day come through from dad and yeah, started like most other days. We had we sat down there and he said, Oh, you've got some news for you. I thought, okay. This was, it was a bit of a different vibe, to be fair, than what we'd usually have. And he said, Oh, no easy way to say this, but your auntie passed away today. So we've got Kane and Tilly, who were her children at the time, 11 and three years old. They're going to come and live with us and become part of our family. So that was a bit of a shock to the system. And I suppose growing up to 12, just having one brother and your two parents, it's a bit of a change. But for Nick and I, long term, yeah, it was probably one of the best things that ever happened to us. It was hard. It was challenging. But, you know, the new living arrangements, the, the bit of grief and my parents having all of a sudden take on an extra two children in the family. But, yeah, before us, we saw we had mum and dad really open their hearts in their home to an, another two people. And for Nick and I, yeah, we really gained another brother and sister. Absolutely. To take two people into your family like that, that is just an incredible, incredible feat and sounds like that you really took them on board and just took them in as one of your own. So quite incredible, Jack. When you left school, you travelled overseas to live out your dream of completing the 2,000-mile American grain harvest. Can you explain to our listeners what this is and why it was so important to you? One of my dreams from a very early age was to go over to America and drive a header across the country. So I think it originally stemmed like it. I loved harvest, so it's probably my favourite time of year, as it is for most young guys. Uh, certainly something I'd always been attracted to, and then in like the late 2000s. So there was these videos that would start popping up from guys over in America, and you just think, God, it feels so far away, but it looks like the absolute dream. All these John Deere headers doing circles around the wheat paddocks. And yeah, I thought to myself, if I ever got a chance to do that, I definitely would. So yeah, graduated school. High school at the end of 2015, I'd met a fella that I worked with previously um, out at a farm I'd been working on in the school holidays that had actually been to America and done this same experience. And his feedback from it was, yeah, fantastic, definitely go if you can get a chance. So lucky enough that he had a connection there to a guy that was based out of Kiowa in Kansas. I said to my mate, one of my best mates at school at the time, I said, oh, what are you doing next year? He goes, don't know yet, think I'll have a gap here. I said, oh, do you want to come to America with me and we'll go and drive a header for eight months? I showed him a couple of things with it and he goes, oh, yeah, might as well, let's sign up and do it. So, yeah, after school, I was really keen. We, we had it all lined up, ready to fly over to go and join them in Kiowa to get the machines ready. And when the season started towards the end of April, early May, um, we put them on the back of a truck and, and drove them down to Texas. My first year experience in America was being able to get this truck license, this road train license at 19 years old. They pretty much gave us like a theory test and it was 20 multiple choice questions. They pretty much sat behind you and gave the answers as you did it. And then all you had to do for the theory test was A, don't drive on the wrong side of the road and B, <laughs> make sure you come back in one piece. So we got that, we got that done, drove on the right side of the road, luckily, pulled back in and the 19 years old just said, yep. Here's your road train license. Good luck. So I was like, yeah, okay, fair call. Couldn't drink, but you could have a gun and you could drive a road train. How good is that? Is that something that you could bring back to Australia? Were you able to bring your road train license back here and, and put it into action in Australia? Not that easily, unfortunately. I've got it now, but it took me a few more years when I got back to Australia. But yeah, certainly something that was uh, yeah, quite eye-opening there. But yeah, we, we drove them down to Texas, started down there, and over the eight, next eight months, pretty much watched a real go around all the way across America, up into Canada. So yeah, crops, wheat, barley, canola, lentils, paper beans, and then yeah, 
came back down for the fall harvest and did a little bit of uh, soybeans and corn. Great experience. I highly recommend that if anyone got the chance to go over, you live there with a crew of 15 guys from all around the world. Those, yeah, England, New Zealand, Australia. There's a couple of Americans. One from Switzerland, one from Brazil. He was pretty good at making some spicy brews. A couple of things you learn there. It's yeah, you, you definitely get a good appreciation for having a good night's sleep. Plenty of hours, as, as most guys would know, if they've been harvesting. It sounds like a dream to many young farmers. Um, so I'm really glad that you got to live that one out. Jack, not long upon your return from the US and Canada, you experienced some incredibly life-changing news. Can you tell me about what happened? Sure, yep. So I just returned from America after probably what was uh, the best year so far as far as experiences go. Got back, flew home to Australia. I remember meeting mum and dad at the airport there, big smiles and yeah, got, got fond memories of that. Went home for a couple of weeks, just helping out on the farm, catching up with my brothers, my sister, mum and dad. And only two weeks after I got back, yeah, it was a weekend that started like any other. My dad had gone ocean kayaking between Anglesey and Torquay. He'd done this many times before. He absolutely loved it. Good at what he did. Had, had been out plenty of times. I remember he said to me that weekend, Jack, I'll be home around lunchtime and we'll catch up then. I said, sounds good, Dad. We'll, we'll see you in a bit. We'll see you after lunch. So that was the night before. That day, lunchtime passed, one o'clock passed, and two o'clock went by. And I was in the house at the time and I heard a diesel four-wheel drive come down the driveway. I thought, oh, here's Dad. I'll, I'll go out and say hello to him. And as I walked out, the colour of the ute didn't look quite right and it took the first driveway into the front of the house instead of the driveway at the back side where Dad would usually drive. And as I looked out the window, I saw that on the side of this white ute was the, the police-coloured checkers. And I, I knew at that point, well, you know, something's not quite right. But you never you never expect anything too major. So I walked out and, yeah, I remember vividly I was standing there. It was just me and my sister at home. Uh, my sister was in her room at the time. And he said, are you, are you Mark Jordan Hill's son? I said, yes, yeah, I am. He goes, oh, sorry to tell you, but your father, Mark Jordan Hill, drowned today. And in that moment, yeah, I'd, I just felt something in my chest really get ripped out and I, I dropped to my knees at that point, um, really not knowing, I suppose, what, yeah, what lay ahead but something just inside just rips apart. And it was a, it was a physical pain as well, which is something, yeah, I never expected from, from news like that. Um, I don't remember a lot of what he said after that, but it was, yeah, it was time at that point to, yeah, I suppose get up off my knees and figure out what we're going to do from here. And the only pain worse than me hearing that myself, those words, which we have never left me, is then having to tell the rest of my family that same news. So my sister was the only one home with me at the time and she was 10 years old at the time. So it was it was fairly tough news to tell her. Um, didn't probably fully comprehend what it meant at the time. Uh, got my brothers back home. They were out at the time. And, yeah, again, for, for Kane and Tilly, this wasn't the first time that a parent had passed away on them so that was probably even harder again for those guys to hear it 
and also my brother. Um, yeah, sat him in down and told him, and he'd been battling a bit at the time too. So, yeah, just each of those reactions has really stuck with me, I suppose. And mum, mum at the time too, I do feel for her, she was over in New Zealand at my grandma's 70th birthday and I called her. I said, mum, are you, are you around with anyone at the moment? She said, yeah, I'm just, I'm just walking outside though if you need to chat to me. I said, okay, that'd be good, but just make sure you're sitting down. She was like, oh, that's a bit weird. Why would you ask me to sit down? She's like, yeah, I'm sitting down now. And I said, mum, there's no easy way to say this, but dad passed away. And yet the scream on the other end of the phone was, was um, fairly tough to hear. So it was, yeah, it was a very tough time that day uh, and then going forward as well. And what started as a family of four then grew to a family of six with Kane and Tilly coming to live with us and, and from that day on was now a family of five. Jack, I can't even imagine how you must have felt when the police showed up at your door to give you some news that was going to change the entire trajectory of your life at that time at such a young age. For it to just pivot in one very conversation like that, it must have been really incredibly hard for you and your family. Yeah, it was a challenge and, I mean, it's, yeah, everyone definitely has their battles and and hears similar news in in different various forms. It's really, yeah, it's, it's very final. There's almost a little bit of hope, but when you when you hear those words, there's no hope. That's it for for that person coming back anyway. Jack, how do you think that those experiences have helped shape who you are today? The the taking in of of your two cousins to be a part of your family, and then losing your dad in that very instant. How do you think that they've shaped who you are as a person today? It's a good question. It's a very reflective question. That one. I think the Kane and Tilly. That's been. 13 years now so a lot of that I used to be a quite a very black and white person before that time them coming to live with us really opened my eyes to the world isn't black and white it's very there's bits in between it's great but yeah with the with my dad dying quite quickly it's hard to say whether it helps you or it doesn't in the long term because it is what it is it's not you don't really know the person you would be without that event happening just me reflecting now I think it definitely makes you grow up very quickly I felt quite a bit of pressure being the oldest of three other siblings and, and mum still being at home as well. But there's definitely a sense of responsibility there from that day forward that you've got to carry more than probably what you did the day before. Even to this day, there's probably there's definitely things that you still would like to call and ask for, you know, ask advice on. That's that would be the the biggest challenging thing. But the flip side to that is you've really, yeah, just got to, I suppose, either look elsewhere for it. it's not going to be ideal but uh, yeah maybe you draw on other people's experiences or just really figure out a way to get there without having that I suppose support. A tough question to answer but you did really well so thank you. You're now a product specialist with Class Lexian Harvesters in Australia. What does that entail? So I'm now working for uh, Landpower who's the importer or the wholesaler for class equipment across the country um, and my role with them now, so after I finished Marcus Oldham there last year, yeah, started full-time with, with this crew. So product specialist with the class Lexi and Harvesters is predominantly based in the East Coast, but quite a lot of the role varies nationally. So that would be a lot of support for the dealer network and our customer base around the product itself. A fair bit of it is our operator training day, so nearly at the back end of those now, between the east and the west, yeah, we probably would have had 400-ish operators come through our, our head of schools 
all around the country from Dolby down to SA and then over to the West. So that is, is around, yeah, helping our customers get the most out of their machine. And then the other part of that job too is that I'm responsible for the demonstration program nationally now as well. So that's a team of nine people at this stage. And yeah, we've got four in the West and five of us in the East at this stage across all the machines. So it's there's a fair bit of logistics and making sure everyone's got a bed to sleep on for the night and that I haven't forgotten about them. But yeah, no, it's, um, <laughs> it's been a good steep learning curve, but loving the job. You meet all sorts of characters from all walks of life and and uh, every state's got a, a different word for if you want to order a schooner or a midi or a pint, they all mean different millimetres of the vessel that you want to have a beer in. So that no, has been a good learning experience. Sounds like a very big responsibility you've now got on your shoulders as well, but no doubt I'm sure that you're taking that in your stride. You recently went to Europe as a part of your role. What were you doing over there? A lot of guys at work would probably tell me I was avoiding the depths of winter in Victoria. <laughs> <laughs> to be fair, it's a good comment and, a, and it's not wrong. Yeah. I was over there for work um, on a bit of an exchange for Class UK, which is the English, I suppose, version or company of what we have here in Australia with land power. So they've done it quite a bit in the past with their technical side. They'll send tech guys over for their harvest season. But this is the first time it's happened from a product management side. So I went over at the start of June and spent all of June, July and August in the UK. And it was, yeah, a lot around operator training again. So it was another 400 people, plenty of time meeting farmers and trying to remember names. There's that many. And also quite a bit around the demo program. So so running a, a header over there in the UK. And of course, you get your weekends off. So you've got to go and do a bit of travelling while you're there, see the sights. So uh, England's best beach, they called it. Full of pebbles, I can imagine. <laughs> yeah, full of pebbles, yeah. I think it was about 12 degrees. This is the middle of summer, overcast. And they said, oh, you want to come for a, a weekend up to England's best beach? I thought, you beauty, yeah. I haven't seen a beach for a while. And we got up there and it was exactly that, pebbles, overcast, no waves. And they said, isn't it just fantastic? I was like, oh, I won't tell them about the beaches we got in Australia. <laughs> Oh, too funny. So much for escaping the winter of Victoria, heading over to um to England. Their summers probably just matches our Australian winters. <laughs> yeah, that's right. But no, it was really good to see their method of farming too. It's Europe hasn't been a place I'd been too much. But yeah, to see their way of their farming systems very intertwined with their regional cities and bigger cities as well. Yeah, you drive a couple of Ks and you've gone from a paddock to a major city sort of thing and that's all very, very intertwined. The UK in general is smaller than Victoria but they have three times the number of people. It's a lot of people anyway. Plenty of time stuck in traffic jams trying to get to the paddock. Probably not something that you're incredibly used to. <laughs> no, that's right. Yeah, yeah. That's the same change. But no, it's always, it felt a little bit like home to be fair all English speaking, all drive on the left side of the road. So it was uh, yeah, great experience and for sure very lucky to have gone over there for the summer. I'm glad you enjoyed it. That sounds like such a dream. Jack, you graduated from university fairly recently, um, back in 2022, but it must have been a steep learning curve for you to immediately jump into jetting off all over the world and then start delivering workshops. How did you prepare for that? For lack of a better metaphor, it was really just sink or swim. <laughs> It's one of those things. I think a lot of it was just the right place, the right time and past experiences. I draw on a lot as well. So yeah, from the the product side of it, 
the guys I were working for around Winchelsea where I grew up and that did all our harvesting ran class Lexium machines back then. So it was certainly something that wasn't 100% new to me anyway. I spent more time in a Lexington than the other colour for sure. So that background and operating the American trip for the eight months there as well, from harvesting perspective, it w- was really handy in the operating side, different crops, different machinery. And then, yeah, the presenting side of things or the operator schools, again, probably drawing upon past experience there a little bit too. In high school, did a lot of a lot of that public speaking, especially around year 12. Had a lot of presentations through school and Marcus as well. I mean, we were, we were up nearly every week trying to talk to people. So <laughs> I think Marcus was a really good experience for that side of things. And it prepares you so well for whatever role you get into outside of the classroom or in agriculture in general, whether it is something like this in ag machinery or product management, something like you're doing with the relationships and the banking sort of things, or even guys going back into production. Going into Marcus, I was definitely had enjoyed the on-farm types side of things. But yeah, when you turn up and you don't know anybody out of 200 other people that you got to meet, it soon teaches you to put your hand out and say, hi, how are you getting on? I'm Jack or whatever it is. It becomes second nature and a lot of that can get you a fair way off found anyway. Just put your hand out, say hello. And it's amazing generally who you've met before that's a mutual connection and really just going from there. So the old adage, a stranger is just a friend you haven't met yet or or a business partner you don't know of. So. <laughs> Absolutely. Jack, just on that, so what advice do you have for anyone who may currently be in a situation where things haven't really gone as they planned in their lives and they might be struggling to get back on their feet? Looking at your life now and looking back, what advice might you have for someone experiencing that? Yeah, it's a good question. To be fair, while I was in that situation, looking back on it now, there was one piece of advice that I had and and I often referred back to, which was just take the step you can see. It depends where you are in in the whole scheme of what's happened and, and yeah, every situation is going to be different. At the time that probably those two events happened to me there, I didn't know what was going on the next day, but, but what I could see was either the next hour, what I was going to do then, the next day, maybe where I was going to go. And then as you go ahead of time, like up until this point, yeah, definitely you can have a goal, but all you can do if you can just see that next step, even if you don't know exactly your path you're going to take to get to your goal, you can take it. And I think there was a good analogy that I heard back then too that this story came from, and it was a story about a miner and his son that were down a mine shaft together. He was going to help his dad at work and they both had a headlamp on their head and the roof, or they had some tremor underground and the roof half caved in. And they, with this tremor, obviously, yeah, dark things happened and they became separated at this point in time. And for whatever reason, the, the, the son's headlamp got damaged and he couldn't quite see his way to where he needed to go to find his, his dad. Um, and he said, yeah, dad, I can't see where I'm going. What should I do? And he, it was damaged. You could only see really that one step in front of him just under the light in the cave or the mine shaft. And he said, well, we'll just take that one step. And, yeah, if you've got that goal of, say, finding that person you'd lost in the cave there, you do take that one step, one step at a time, you do end up getting there. So it was a, yeah, it was a story I often or an analogy I often went back to and certainly one I probably still implement a bit today when, uh, when the phones go hot and you've got some challenges to get through. Great advice. Something I think anyone interested in ag or not can probably take on board. That's um, great advice, Jack. I'm certainly going to put that one 
in my basket. <laughs> yeah, no, that's right. I mean, any, anyone in Aga, doesn't matter where you are, there's a common theme there and that is resilience and probably not knowing exactly how we're going to get where we're going to go. So it's, yeah, not unique to my situation at all. It's, I guess, across a lot of our industry. And, yeah, the common themes there are most people have got a heap of resilience more than probably what you'd see in the general population and a good work ethic behind it. And finally, looking into your future, Jack, where do you see your life sort of five to ten years' time from now? I'll get my crystal ball out. We'll have a look. No, <laughs> no it's another great question, Zali. You've really rounded it out with another cracker. Five to ten years from now, that is a really good question and one I probably couldn't answer 100% of the way. I think if I had to put some general themes to it, it would still be in agriculture still following the passion for machinery and the people within ag and most likely still doing something around the people side of it, machinery side of it. So whether I'm still with the current role I'm in now, maybe, maybe not, really just depends. But I've got a strong passion for being in this industry and and the people and the challenges around it. So there's a good chance you'll find me somewhere in there, Zali. But yeah, as I said from that last question you asked, it's and the events that are happening in my life, you, you really don't know 100% what's going to happen. So good to have a goal. But if the plan changes, you, you take the step you can see to, to move around. So, Absolutely. Jack, we have one more fun little thing to do at the end. Just to finish up the interview, it's time for our quick fire round. So I've got a few questions for you and I'm going to ask them in rapid succession. So there are two rules. Number one, You have to keep your answers to a maximum of one sentence. And two, you have to answer with the first thing that comes to your mind. Oh, sounds dangerous, as But let's go. We'll give it a crack. All right, let's go. If you could have a superpower, what would it be? I'd want to fly for sure. I'd love to fly around. Who do you look up to most in your life? Mum and dad, for sure. What phrase or cliche do you live by? Power on regardless. Love that. If you had to eat one meal for the rest of your life, what would it be? Wheat beaks and milk. (laughs) And finally, Jack, when you're out on farm, what brand of boots do you wear? Steel blues. Nice. (laughs) One of the greatest. That's good. Makes you think. That's unreal. How good is that? Oh, well, thank you so much for joining us here on the show today, Jack. Quite an incredible story that you have. You've been through so much at such a young age. To have so many things happen to you at such an early stage of life, you've really picked up the pieces of your family's sort of shattered hearts and glued them back together in such an admirable manner. And to know you as a successful, young, charismatic and motivated gentleman that you are, it is a real tribute to you and, of course, your family. Uh, thank you, Zali. Thank you for the kind words and really appreciate you inviting me on your podcast today. Always good to catch up and hopefully see you around in the near future. Thanks for listening to Beyond the Farm Gate, a podcast by Rural Bank where we shine a light on great Australian stories in agriculture. Rural Bank supports the agribusiness community by providing financial services, knowledge and leadership for Australian farmers to grow. For more information, including regular analysis and reports, head to the website, ruralbank.com.au. This show was produced with strategy and production support from Wavelength Creative. To make sure you don't miss an episode of Beyond the Farm Gate, be sure to subscribe to or follow the show in your podcast app. 
And while you're there, leave us a five-star review. It really helps others find the show. I'm Zali Thomas. I'm Greg Cookle. And I'm Beck Wren. And we'll see you in the next episode of Beyond the Farm Gate.